As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. For those who follow me on social media, you already know, if it comes to critiquing and having all the smoke for the US empire, then you're going to find it where I am. So today, joining me to help us deliver some critique and some smoke for the US empire, in particularly imperialism, we have Dana Lopez. Welcome to The Malcolm Effect. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to speak with you today. It's an absolute pleasure, absolute pleasure. So first things first, we're going to talk all things imperialism and specifically how the US policies enacted in Puerto Rico affect its people and what US interests are tied to. But I think it's important that before we even go into the specifics, do you mind giving like a history of Puerto Rico in terms of colonization? Yeah, so I can give sort of a brief overview. Puerto Rico is often referenced by folks as the world's oldest colony, dating back to the arrival of Columbus in the, quote, new world. Puerto Rico was occupied by Spain for, for, I want to say, 400 years. And just around the time that Spain was set to release Puerto Rico as a sovereign ter- as a sovereign nation, and this was in May of 1898, the United States showed up with military, with cannons, like they just full on showed up on the island and set up shop and took Puerto Rico for the U.S. empire. So essentially when when the U.S. showed up, Puerto Rico had already been colonized for many, many years. They had never had the opportunity to to govern themselves. The island has never been able to govern itself in the history ever since it was colonized. So, so when, when the U S showed up, it had a, it was sort of like ripe for, for the U S it was in a vulnerable position. They had resistance movements, many resistance movements, Spain, there was, there was conflict, you know, Puerto Ricans did resist and did try to overthrow the Spanish. And because Spain was so far away geographically, you know, it was it was an interesting situation, but they were eventually sort of coming to this place where they were going to release Puerto Rico. Now, there's a lot of different historical narratives about what actually happened, and it depends on. So Puerto Rico has been used historically as just sort of this this bargaining chip or this pawn of a nation in order to you know further imperial interests. So depending on what the imperial interests are, the narrative about how things happened is really interesting. So. You have some people who say that, you know, these are usually statehood people or people who don't really want to look at the truth about Puerto Rico being a colonized Mm -hmm. nation, being used for imperial interests. They'll say things like the U.S. purchased Puerto Rico from Spain, or they'll say things like the the Puerto Ricans were, were grateful for the U.S. to come and help them govern and and run the country after, you know, the Spanish left. And there's a lot of different narratives that you'll hear based on who's, who is uh, speaking about Puerto Rico and what their interests are. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the general overview, but the history is based, like the U.S. history here started in 1898. 
So for over a hundred years, this has been a U.S. occupied colony of the United States. So it's very interesting you said that because we often hear that the U.S. will say, oh, the U.S. is not an empire, or people from the U.S. will say it's not an empire, or we don't have colonies, but for all intents and purposes, it is colonizing and continues to colonize places like Puerto Rico. That's why I think it's so important that I kind of, we bring to the forefront in front of people a real-life example, and also bringing it to what does colonization or colonized territory look like in the 21st century. So going into that further, what does that look like? So what are the U.S. interests in Puerto Rico and what policies, if you have any example, do they enact to ensure their colonization effectively? Right. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's an excellent point and segue because, so the U.S. has always denied the fact that it, it has imperial interests, right? They, so their entire ethos and their sort of like narrative about the founding and the formation of the U.S. nation state has always been, you know, seeking seeking freedom from imperialism. We're leaving the, the European empires behind and we're coming and we're creating this new experimental, you know, multiracial, multicultural democratic utopia. But obviously it's just utter you know, that's not true. That's not true on yeah. almost any level. The U.S. was born of empire. The U.S. was born of, of, of colonization. I mean, that's the, the violence, the genocide, all of it. And so those, so the ways that imperialism continues to manifest and the way that the U.S. operates as an empire is just, I would say, um, really effectively obscured by language and by these sort of like public relations, these kind of like public relations ways in which they they speak about the different imperial interests and projects that they have, right? So mm -hmm. they'll go into somewhere like, for example, you know, there there is a U.S. empire. They've occupied, the U.S. has occupied the Philippines. The U.S. has occupied yep. Haiti. The U.S. occupies Guam, the U.S. And they, they use language like territory or, for example, Puerto Rico, the you know, the free associated state or the Commonwealth. So they, they use these names and they use this le uh, legal language to really obscure what's actually happening, right? They don't, they don't name it. They don't say this is a colony of the U.S. They call it something else that sounds like the nation actually has way more sovereignty than they do. And so yeah. the way that it started in Puerto Rico, so it's really interesting. The way it started in Puerto Rico was basically the U.S., you know, showed up took over the island, and then they started doing all kinds of things. Coincidentally, there was a, a massive hurricane the year after, around the year after the, that the U.S. took over Puerto Rico, and they sent, you know, no aid. They sent literally no, no wow. support, nothing. And instead, what they did was they showed up and they started they they decided that was the year that they were gonna change the the currency in puerto rico so they basically undervalued the puerto rican peso 60 cents to the dollar to the one u.s dollar and they passed legislation forcing all puerto ricans to uh, use only u.s dollars and all landowners had to transfer every single uh, mortgage that they had into u.s banks so this happened right away. Of course, you can imagine many farmers, landowners, homeowners, people had to default on these really high interest mortgages, which then yeah. left it really open to predatory, predatory land grabs, really. When And then you have these U.S. implanted governors who, who were constantly, you know, they were, they were planted by the U.S., they weren't elected, they were, they were typically white American 
men. They were not Puerto Rican. They did not speak Spanish. They did not understand anything about the culture, um, you know, bringing their business interests in. And so they started to accumulate large, uh, huge proportions of the land in Puerto Rico. And uh, slowly but surely, this is when the sugar empire sort of started to, to be built. So you have this monoculture of sugar on all of these stolen lands that were appropriated yeah. by undervaluing of um, Puerto Rican currency. So right there, you know, that's a huge, it's a huge move to, to really, to oppress and suppress Puerto Rican independence and sovereignty, you know? So that was one thing. <laughs> yeah. No, I find it interesting because often when we speak about colonization, I think the way it's probably taught in many Western schools, we we envisage like the arrival of people on ships, the kind of dispossession of land, the the forced subjugation of people, etc. And and that often is the case in the US's history, and that is the case, especially in British and other European nations, the history of those nations. But I think when we come to imperialism, as many, for example, in Africa, I've written about like Kwame Nkrumah. People have spoken about neo-colonialism or imperialism being a higher stage of um, next stage of capitalism. Actually, nowadays we find in the 21st century it's often linked to economic domination through U.S. financial institutions such as you know the World Bank or the IMF. You know, and we find the same kind of colonial patterns being exacted, being enacted by way of like economic domination. So do you have any like examples of or policies that we see the US enacting that keeps Puerto Rico and contributes to their underdevelopment? Oh, absolutely. The underdevelopment of Puerto Rico has started. I mean, to also go back in history a little bit, you know, the US showed up after the end of, of slavery in Puerto Rico. So there's a lot of ways that the US kind of utilizes that timeline to be like, you know, we were sort of this benevolent, you know, their narrative of, of being benevolent, like showing up and we didn't, you know, we didn't practice slavery there. We didn't do this, we didn't do that. There was obviously very extractive practices. The main interest about in, originally for the US to take Puerto Rico was military strat, strategic location between, you know, between Europe, between the United States, between South America and Central America. And then they, yeah. you know, you'll read historical uh, records saying things like it's, it's this, you know, this lovely little winter resort escape, and it's a very strategic military, you know, military post. And so things like that, right? And so from, from day one, there was just these very super dehumanizing ways of speaking about Puerto Rico. But so from, from day one, right, they started dispossessing folks of land, and then there was all these different things that happened, right? They made Puerto Ricans U.S. citizens in, I think, 1917. And the only reason that they gave U.S. citizenship to Puerto Ricans, it was a very limited U.S. citizenship. They don't have any representation in Congress. That's one way that they continue to, wow. yeah, no representation. We have what is called, she's, what is she even called, Jennifer? She's basically a, a representative who can't vote. So she kind of just shows up and okay. she's called the resident commissioner of, of Puerto Rico. So that's basically it. That's the only representation Puerto Rico has in Congress. But what they did was they made Puerto Ricans U.S. citizens. And the reason they did that was simply to be able to have Puerto Ricans fight in the U.S. military for our further wow. imperial interest overseas. They were like, oh, cool. Now you can join the army. Now you can join the Navy. Now you can join the service and you can help us continue to further the empire. And after they've already you know, underdeveloped the nation and put Puerto Ricans in a very like 
vulnerable position, you know, this, this, it's the same thing they do in the United States where they go into exploited communities and, and recruit yep. heavily for the military. Right. So they did that right away. That was one thing. And then there was a growing nationalist independence movement that started quickly after, and it was a powerful resistance movement. It was a really well-organized independence movement. And, and immediately the United States becoming threatened by that installed in, in insular police force. So they brought in, you know, a U.S. planted police force. They they brought the FBI in. The FBI infiltrated the independence movement at every level. They started keeping these like massive, they were called carpetas, these these massive files um, on anybody who who was associated with the independence movement. In fact, you know, people in our family have have them because the FBI was forced to return them to people after a certain point because it was obviously deemed unconstitutional to wow. be keeping these these intel files. But but all of these things were really strategic, right? So the U.S. was really clear that if they had powerful independence leaders like Pedro Alviso Campos, um, who was a Harvard-trained attorney, like he came back to the island and and he really led a cohesive, powerful resistance movement. And he was, you know, public enemy number one to the United States. So they began building every single possible case. I mean, they did things like the Ponce Massacre. The Ponce Massacre was enacted specifically to show Puerto Ricans, like, this is what will happen if you fight or even speak of independence. You know, the insular police came out on a Sunday afternoon with a, at a peaceful demonstration and, you know, shot, killed 17 people uh, in broad daylight. And it was it was profoundly violent. And it sent a message for for generations. I mean, we're talking generations of these kinds of attacks on on Puerto Ricans in their own home, in order to keep keep people from wanting or fighting or, or, you know, even speaking of independence. And then they passed Act 53, which is called uh, the gag law in English, sort of colloquial terms, but uh, La Mordaza is how they speak of it in, in Spanish. And, and that was a law that said you cannot fly any Puerto Rican flags. You cannot speak of, of, of independence. You cannot sing patriotic songs, you know, and that that lasted for a decade or so. I mean, you have just like time after time again, these policies that, that started out as a way to suppress and then they've just built on that further. So the way I kind of look at the policy history here is it's been this kind of pyramid of, of oppressive policy in order to continue to continue mm-hmm. to continue. And so those foundational ways that they that they created terror were really strategic. You know, you had people's neighbors telling on them if somebody thought somebody was involved in an independence movement, they're reporter reporting to the FBI. And so, yeah, it's just been. You so know, strategic. it's so Thank you so much. You don't understand what that did for me because I often say to people, if you want to understand how pattern or the manual rather of how the US treats its exploited classes within the country. So within the United States, let's talk about black and brown people and mm-hmm. of working class backgrounds and even poor people in general. Look at how it treats people abroad people who it's dominating and subjugating and people who it subjected to its imperial interests. So for example, everything you said there could be right out of the playbook of the Black Panther story, for example, Mm -hmm. in terms of infiltration, in terms of getting people to snitch on other people. 
Mm -hmm. in terms of quelling independence movements or people who want a better life for themselves. So I said, it's very important that this is why I often say to people, yes, you might think, oh, it's a distant land over there, you know, and obviously, I mean, if those who know me will know that I'm always talking about like, you know, internationalism anyway, but it's internationalism for a reason. If you want to know what the playbook is, what the manual is of the US empire, look to see how it treats people abroad, especially those people who in places where they're furthering their imperial interests. So thank you for that eloquent breakdown that was sending so many light bulbs off in my head and I can make so many networks in my head I was thinking about. Oh, it's all connected. So, it's a global matrix. Exactly. I mean, the US imperial interest, capitalism, the way that they all intersect, you know, and I think that that's the thing, right? We get so hyper-focused on individual, you know, smaller instances of oppression and, and different identities. And we get really focused on those things which are essential to understand things at a micro level. And, you know, I won't speak a lot of like my, <laughs> my conventional sort of institutional educational training, but like being trained to look at things from a systemic contextualized macro, macro level, you have to start understanding yeah. that these things are systematic and strategic constantly. And they're repetitive, almost predictable. You know, they're so systematic, the way that they are enacted. And, and as you mentioned, the Black Panther Party, I mean, all these things were happening also in different, for example, a lot of these things were happening in the 50s here in Puerto Rico, in conjunction with like the Cuban Revolution, right? These are always anti-communist movements as well. So there's a threat of like Puerto Rico taking independence or having any kind of a revolutionary action. You know, they were agitating for revolution in their own ways at the same time as the Cubans were. So, you know, there's all these military interests. There's all these different, you know, anti-communist fears and sort of like it, there's there was so much happening. And and when you have exactly. Yeah. So so that was all happening around the same time. And these are all contemporary uh, movements. And so the U.S. felt so threatened. Right. And they just that's what they do. That's what they do. And and U.S. imperialism will have you think, to borrow a phrase from Vijay Prashad, it's the production of amnesia, you know, phrases and slogans like never again. We must learn from our lessons. And you think to yourself, hang on a minute. At which point do you say, no, this is strategic. This is deliberate. And this is purposeful and intentional. It's not a mere coincidence that the same pattern of domination and quote-unquote mistakes keep happening. So thank you once again for breaking that down. So let's talk about the 21st century. I want to talk about resources. Mm -hmm. What are the resources look like in Puerto Rico that the, that the U.S. is so interested in? That's such a good question. So no one is entirely clear. Uh, for me, okay. okay, so one one main conclusion that I, I have kind of come to, and I think a lot of scholars, Puerto Rican scholars, Puerto Rican authors, and, and journalists and people have come to. So there's this phenomenon of d disaster capitalism, right? And the U.S., yeah. so not only does the U.S., you know, benefit from holding Puerto Rico as a colony, but they benefit from keeping Puerto Rico in this sort of undefined status, right? So they're called right. this like free associated state. They're called a commonwealth. They're called everything but colony. And this, like, you know, the history of the Caribbean has always been this sort of it's always been this place where the U.S. can sort of do whatever they want, right? They've done, you know, they've yeah. used Puerto Rico and Puerto Ricans for, for medical experimentation, for pharmaceutical production. They've done all kinds of like horrific things in the name wow. of business, right? 
So, so in order to do that, they need to keep Puerto Rico's status very undefined because then they can come in here and they can do whatever they want and nothing can be, they can't be accountable for anything. So you've had situations where they were, you know, the Congress um, legalized forced sterilization of women with, without a medical, a medical reason. There was, you know, I want to say, I, and I don't want to get this incorrect, but I think up to one third of the population of Puerto Rican's women, Puerto Rico's women at one point were forced sterilized because they were trying to, essentially the idea has, has been, you know, Puerto Rico needs to become like, like Hawaii, you know, they want to, they want to turn it into this sort of like utopian vacation state, but also, and, and the thing is a statehood would then make them accountable to the constitution. So keeping it in limbo again is sort of, in their interest, but currently, right now, it's a huge tax haven. For example, you have Act 20 and Act 22, recently amended Act 60, where U.S. corporations and private individuals can come and set up, you know, live here half of the year, whatever, and get massive tax exemptions that Puerto Ricans are not entitled to. So, so you have U.S. you have U.S. corporations coming here and setting up business and receiving all these massive tax benefits. Cryptocurrency is a huge one right now. And, and land, just land, you know, Puerto Rico's beaches have always been protected, but you have now illegal construction happening in massive, in, in protected, in environmentally protected sites. Like you have, you just have people moving here for all different personal interests. And the goal has always been to make it untenable for Puerto Ricans to live here so that U.S. empire can continue to, to gain control. I mean, that's really, that's the only thing I can oh, see. My blood is boiling. Sorry, my blood is boiling. <laughs> yeah, no, trust like, me. It's so infuriating. <laughs> I, I can only imagine, I'm, I'm hearing it from like a secondhand source. I can, uh, sorry, a, a secondary. I can only imagine how you must feel if you're living there and you're seeing it. So in terms of like citizenship then, just mm-hmm. so our listeners will know, do Puerto Ricans get to go to America normally since they're American citizens? Yes. So that is, that's sort of the big reward, right? Is that they have free access to the Imperial Corps. They can move freely between Puerto Rico and the U.S. But when you live on the island, you cannot vote. You, you know, you don't have representation in Congress. So Puerto Ricans often, Mm -hmm. and then you have an economy that's distressed. And I, and I'll go into a little bit more about what's happening currently in terms of PROMESA, which was passed in 2016. I'm sure you've heard of that. So what's happened is they've made it quite untenable for many Puerto Ricans to stay here, especially as real estate is, you know, neighborhoods are being gentrified. Like it's, it's the same sort of, again, the systematic and predictable procession of ongoing colonialism here. But so, yeah, so Puerto Ricans have always been, that has been sort of the the carrot that has been dangled. It's like, okay, well, it's hard for you here. So go to the U.S. and you can, you know, you can, you can become a a U.S. citizen. So you can have all the things, right? And there's this big colonial lie that is like very pervasive here that things are better in the U.S. that work, you know, things are just more abundant. Your life will be better. Everything's better, right? There's this sort of like big colonial lie. And and it starts really early in in schooling and in education. They're indoctrinated. And again, this is another thing that, you know, until I was partnered, I met a Puerto Rican person and had an intimate relationship where I got to understand these things. I had no idea because my public education in the United States never talked about any of this, you know, none of it, none of it, none of it. University, my, my classes at university, like this was not discussed. I mean, this is, again, speaks to the, the sort of public relations 
project and the sort of languaging and the covert nature and the obscuring of the true relationship that the U.S. has with Puerto Rico. And they do what they do everywhere else, which is say things like it's complicated. It's very complicated, the relationship. And it's like, it's not complicated. But to to your point, yeah, so they do grant, and I'm going to say this in air quotes, they grant Puerto Ricans passport privilege of moving through the, the world with a U.S. passport, whatever that means, right? So you have that. Yeah, so if that answers that question. And then you wanted to go into the specific economic policies of today then. Do you want to expand right. on that for us? Yes, absolutely. So going back to the reason I, I think the reason that I shared early on, the way, the really specific and strategic ways that, that land was taken and that the finances yeah. of Puerto Ricans were, you know, were suppressed early, early on is to show that, you know, over the last, we, we know that over the last 120 years or so, this, this very act set the stage for the economic insecurity and all of the issues, you know, that will plague Puerto Rico. These uh-huh. kinds of policies, things like the Jones Act, have deeply and profoundly impacted Puerto Ricans. Uh, the Jones Act is, is in place saying basically that um, U.S. ports, if you're, you have to, basically Puerto Rico has to import every single thing through the United States. So Puerto Rico doesn't wow. have free trade with anyone in the region. There, Anything that comes to Puerto Rico has to go from a, on a U.S. built ship from a U.S. port to a U.S. port in Puerto Rico. So you can imagine, right, like the, the, we're importing 80% of the food here on this island, which is absurd when there's oh very fertile farmland that has been stolen and appropriated and done all kinds of things, right? So you have that. The Jones Act is hugely inhibiting of, and, and, and it creates like a massive inflation on the island. Everything costs more. Everything's imported. There's this huge import tax that basically people have to pay. And it's all because the U.S. restricts free trade for Puerto Rico. So there's that. Wow. Then you have, you have policies like that, you know, time and time again, where, and then Puerto Ricans don't get to vote. They don't get to, to have any say in how these, these, this legislation impacts them. So economically, you know, yeah, there's, there's been corruption, there's been excessive borrowing and excessive loans and, and, and predatory loans, by the way, these predatory loans that, yeah. <laughs> that the Puerto Rican economy had to, had to take in order to supplement, you know, the ways in which the U.S. undercuts their ability to have a truly, quote, free trade economy, right? So, mm-hmm. so what happens is come 2016, you have this massive debt, this massive debt that's been accumulated by Puerto Rico because Puerto Rico cannot claim or file bankruptcy. The U.S. decides to enact what they call PROMESA, which is a, an acronym for something that I cannot recite off top of my hand, but off the top of my head. But basically what, what it did was it, it installed an unelected, appointed by the United States fiscal oversight board to control all of Puerto Rico's spending and to try to recoup funds from these predatory loans and to try to recoup funds from all of the issues that, that Puerto Rico yeah. quote found itself in, right? But this is the U.S., this is a very punitive measure. The U.S. is punishing Puerto Rico, basically, for not managing their finances when clearly at every turn the U.S. has undermined their ability to manage finances well, right? Yep. So, so PROMESA comes in and they start cutting teachers' pensions. They start cutting health programs. Enforced austerity. Enforced austerity. Exactly. Exactly. That's, yeah. that's exactly what it is. So it's enforced austerity. They come in, they start cutting teachers' pensions. They start cutting 
any kind of social welfare programs, public health, you know, just anything. They take, they're taking funds from the university. You know, most recently this week, the Supreme Court just voted to, that it's not unconstitutional to exclude Puerto Ricans from social, social security insurance, which is specifically for disabled folks and folks over 65. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just at every turn, at no, every just, turn. Again, it's reminiscent of how the IMF conditions its loans for places like Argentina, mm-hmm. for places in, in Ghana, for mm-hmm. example, Ghana and its relationship to cocoa and the Ivory Coast. And I said again, like, open your eyes, people. This is the pattern of play. Colonization never went away. It mm-hmm. just became more economical in many places. And still in some places when the US needs to keep up or maintain its hegemony, it will be physical. Yep. as with the military bases around the world. And again, what you said about the land and 80% of the land is reminiscent of Fanon when Fanon says that, you know, land gives us the dignity. There can be no talk of decolonization without land back. Mm-hmm. And that's why land, land back is so important. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And and everything you just said, totally. I mean, it, it, all, it all resonates. Like the other thing that happened, okay, so on the ground, like right now, what that looks like here is there were originally seven, there was seven military bases, right? We have army, Navy, every service. I live on the wet Northwest coast of the Island in Aguadilla where there's a, there's the, the coast guard is here. So, but there's also border patrol and what you have because of our proximity to the Dominican Republic, for example, boats will come in from the Dominican Republic. These, these small boats, they call them Yolos. They'll come across the, the channel and immediately upon arrival be be taken, violently taken by a US border patrol and taken into an ICE facility. So so wow. you have and so and and also by the way, like pre-colonization, you know, folks used to travel freely in the Caribbean. Like indigenous people have always been nomadic and 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 traveled via via water. And now all of yes. a sudden Puerto Rico is completely isolated from the rest of the region because of US enforced, you know, US enforced immigration policy and all of these things, right? So so there's that. Yeah. And then on top of it, you have also because of the fear that's been implanted about resistance, you know, there is there are Puerto Ricans who are who who are like proud American citizens and you'll see American flags on their cars. That was just about to be my next question, actually. (laughs) I wanted to ask about the class. I said this wouldn't be an episode of the Malcolm Effect if I didn't mention class. So I wanted to ask about the class formation and the class composition of Puerto Rico and how that plays out politically. Yeah, I mean, so and I and again, I, you know, I am not an expert. I am not coming from the lived experience of a Puerto Rican. I am really clear i'm an i'm an observer i'm a witness and i'm and i'm a settler essentially although i'm married mm-hmm. to a puerto rican who is you know re- rematriating by by moving back here his family's been here for generations i'm still mm-hmm. you know i'm still a, a settler here and so i'm observing this right but i definitely have like strong biases of anti-imperialism and anti-capitalism yeah. and the ways that those systems are violent here and i've seen how they have yeah. affected my my family i've seen the way that they've affected my my partner's family and i see the way that they affect people working you know doing becoming a social worker and training to be a social worker i see the systemic all the systemic issues that are that are created so so class wise i you know i remember talking to my partner early on in our relationship like about race in puerto rico and just how race is is sort of delineated and and what that's like and you know for him like so puerto ricans have been sold this there's this kind of 
narrative. In fact, they even have a holiday called Dia de la Raza, like the the great race. You know, everybody is sort of lumped into this category of racialized as as mixed, right? Everybody is either has indigenous, European and African ancestry, right? Because you had had the uh, enslavement and the slave trade came, and then you had the Spanish and the European, you know, settler colonizers, and then you had the indigenous population of the Tainos. And there's a huge indigenous erasure narrative, right? So folks who who do identify as indigenous, who may have preserved relationality and preserved indigenous ancestry are, are invalidated right away because the narrative is that the Tainos have been extinct, period. And so Puerto Ricans wow. are fed this sort of national identity that is very specific to the way that the, that the island is governed, right? And what you have is it has historically always been what they call, what Puerto Ricans call the criolla elite. So the elite class are generally, you know, very like Hispanophile sort of white Puerto Ricans. And they Uh tend to hold the economic power, you know, they hold the economic power here. And, and so I had asked my husband, you know, what his, his take on that was. And I was just like, you know, what is race here? And he's like, well, I don't know as much about how people are racialized as much as I understand the class, you know, there's definite class distinctions, right? And then of course you have and you have that. You have the, the the racialization of Puerto Ricans at the same, you know, Black Puerto Ricans are treated as same. It's it's a class, it's very much a class-based society. And it, you know, it's the same inheritance, slavery, it's the same, and it's not it's not the same, it's distinct, right, to the Caribbean and yeah. to Puerto Rico, but it's a similar, again, systematic historical line that you can follow back to enslavement and to dispossession and to indigenous genocide and to European colonization. It's, it's the same thing. And everyone, you know, the folks in power here. So there's, there's, you know, there's the whiteness aspect of power here, but then there's also, you know, the willingness to have U.S. interests in the front of mind, right? So currently the governor, (laughs) the current governor here, his daughter is coming in and she's some, you know, sort of I don't even want to, I can't specifically say what she does, but I do know she's highly involved with like luxury real estate, commercial real estate, and is making a massive play right now for a lot of real estate development on the island. Shocking. So (laughs) you're seeing people in power, you're seeing people with money and people who are, are solidly aligned with U.S. liberal and neoliberal interests. And it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty awful. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for breaking that down. This has been a, a somewhat of a very much of a masterclass once again, for me anyway, and I hope the listeners found it as interesting as I did. Again, this is The Malcolm Effect with Mamadou Tal. Please like, comment, subscribe. I'm going to leave Dana's social media in the comments. Please follow her threads and what she writes about. I find them fascinating and I'm sure you will too. Until next time, peace and take care. <laughs>